Jesus said to his disciples, Hard trials and temptations are bound to come, but too bad for whoever brings them on. Better to wear a millstone necklace and take a swim in the deep blue sea than give even one of these little dear, uh, dear little ones a hard time. Be alert. If you see your friend going wrong, correct him. If he responds, forgive him. Even if it's personal against you and repeated seven times through the day and seven times he says, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, forgive him. The apostles came up and said to the master, give us more faith. But the master said, you don't need more faith. There is no more or less with faith. If you have a bare kernel of faith, say the size of a poppy seed, you could say to this sycamore tree, go jump in the lake and it would do it. Suppose one of you has a servant who comes in from ploughing the field or tending the sheep. Would you take his coat, set the table and say, sit down and eat? Wouldn't you be more likely to say, prepare dinner, change your clothes and wait table for me until I finish my coffee, then go to the kitchen and have your supper? Does the servant get special thanks for doing what is expected of him? It's the same with you. When you've done everything expected of you, be matter of fact and say, the work is done. What we were told to do, we did. It happened as they made their way towards Jerusalem. He crossed over the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as they entered a village, ten men, all lepers, met him. They kept their distance, but raised their voices, calling out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Taking a good look at them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. They went and while still on their way, became clean. One of them, when he realised that he was healed, turned around and came back, shouting his gratitude, glorifying God. He kneeled at Jesus' feet, so grateful. He couldn't thank him enough, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus said, Were not ten healed? Where are the nine? Can none be found to come back and give glory to God except this outsider? Get up. On your way, your faith has healed and saved you. You mentioned, Graham, being in conversation with someone and they're not getting the point. You say, you just don't get it, do you? Or or you might say, where are you going with this? If you say that's someone thought this, anyway, where on earth is this conversation going? I wonder sometimes where Luke is going at the beginning of chapter 17 says that Jesus went to Jerusalem and travelled through the middle of Samaria and Galilee. That's the, the literal translation of what happens. If you remember that map, you'll see that Galilee's up there, Samaria's in the middle, Jerusalem's down there. You don't get to Jerusalem by travelling through Samaria, then Galilee. It just doesn't happen. You're heading in completely the wrong direction. The NIV tries to make sense of it by saying he's travelling on the border between Samaria and Galilee. But again, many people think that Samaria kind of went straight from the river on one side to the sea the other side. There was no way round the border. You had to cross the river and go through the Decapolis to get there. Or you had to go through Samaria from Galilee to get to Jerusalem. It seems that Luke has Jesus travelling in completely the wrong direction. Where is he going with this? Similarly, these verses seem to be all over the place in terms of their subject matter. Where is Luke going? You really struggle to find any kind of coherent thread joining them together. We jump from the dangers of being the cause of the downfall of a vulnerable person to the need of forgiveness, to the claim that we need faith, then the claim that we are nothing more than unworthy and unprofitable servants. 
And then that's followed by the story of the healing of the ten lepers. It feels a bit like watching a badly edited film that's been cut with a pair of garden shears and stuck back together again not very well. Where is this going? And of course, I'm well aware that lots of you here actually don't really care where it's going either. People love to pour over passages in the gospel trying to think, well, where, where was Luke going with this? How does it all fit together? How does it all make sense? So what? What has that got to do with ordinary, everyday real life. So I'm not going to spend time trying to discover and explain the literary unity of the first 19 verses of Luke chapter 17. But these verses do have things to teach us. They provide us with four factors for faithfully following Jesus. Four things that should characterize our lives as disciples. And the first is forgiveness. Forgiveness. We should be people who set other people free from their sins. Many of you know that when I get up in time, I sometimes go for a run first thing in the morning. And when I used to live in Maidstone, one of the pleasures was being able to go down and run by the river, which was an amazing way to start the day. Remember one day, running along and finding that my feet had got caught up, tangled up in something. And I looked down to discover it was a length of fishing line that in no time at all had contrived to wrap itself round both of my legs... And, and bring me to a halt. And it took a little while and a lot of concentration to figure out how to disentangle myself from this stuff. And that's always stayed with me as a, an example of how sin can ensnare us and wrap itself around us very, very quickly in such a way that it's difficult to get free, to extricate ourselves from it. And when Jesus talks about things that make other people stumble, the root of that word is the snare of a trap. When he talks about making the dangers of making other people stumble, he says we all need to be really careful that we don't entangle other people in our own wrongdoing. That, says Jesus, is the worst thing you could possibly do, to be responsible for another, someone else's moral downfall. If you do that, he says, it's worse than putting a millstone around your neck and jumping in the lake. Don't do it. Because sin is not a private matter. If I do something wrong, that just doesn't just affect me, that affects everybody else around me and it can do so in a variety of ways. We prayed about some difficult things this morning, things that might have touched your life or the life of somebody else that you know. Somebody else's wrongdoing having a knock-on effect upon you either directly or indirectly. And if that's raised issues for you, please have a word with me or with Jack or with the prayer team after the service. Jesus warned of the dangers of making somebody else somebody else's life, go wrong. If I do something wrong, it's not just my business. It affects everybody else whose life I touch as well. My behaviour might influence other people to follow my own bad experience and involve them getting into trouble themselves. Sue mentioned about people who abuse have often been subject to abuse themselves and the knock-on effect that has. If If people know what I'm doing is wrong, that can grieve them and make them upset or angry. If we are Christians, our behaviour is either going to commend the Christian faith or put other people off. And we need to be aware of that. None of us lives in a hermetically sealed unit. We have contact with other people all the time. And for better or worse, what we do will affect other people. And if we do something wrong, it's like leaving a length of fishing line out on a towpath 
that's going to trip up and ensnare the next person who's unwary and comes along and doesn't pay careful attention to where they're going. Whatever you do, don't involve other people in your own sin and drag them down with you. It's a disaster for them. It's a disaster for you. As Christians, we are called instead to be people of forgiveness. And that's completely opposite because forgiveness is about releasing people from their sin, not entangling them and ensnaring them in yours. When people become entangled in destructive patterns of behavior, we are the ones as followers of Jesus who are called to sit down alongside them and help them untie the knots and release them from whatever it is they've got caught up in. It's all too easy to judge and criticize and condemn other people. They've brought it on themselves, we say. They're architects of their own destruction. They're only getting what they deserve. They should have thought about the consequences before they got involved in all that kind of stuff. And maybe so it's easy to judge. It's harder to forgive. Harder to sit down with people and release them and enable them to begin life a different way. Sin has a habit of making victims of us all. We splash around in the shallows of temptation and suddenly find that we are way out of our depth. We need someone to rescue us. Or we start to fiddle around with an innocent length of fishing line and suddenly find that it's wrapped itself around us and we can't get free by ourselves. Forgiveness is about releasing people who have become trapped like that. Rescuing people who find themselves out of their depth. It's what Jesus did all the time. And it's what he calls us to do as well. And how often should we forgive someone? How much are they worth? At what point do we decide that the frequency of sinning means that they're just not worth bothering with anymore? We should forget about them and throw away the key. Where do we draw the line? And Jesus' answer is, you never draw the line. You never draw the line. If someone sins against you seven times in a day, there's be a real pain in the neck. But it's not your place to withhold forgiveness from them if they ask for it. They may have turned their back on us, but that doesn't mean that we're entitled to turn our back on them and ignore them in turn. If at the end of the day they turn round in genuine repentance and seek our forgiveness, we already need to be facing them ready to extend that forgiveness that they need and to help them work at restoring their lives and their relationship and getting rid of whatever it was that was driving their behaviour and helping them find release from it. Forgiveness is the first feature for followers of Jesus. We don't trip other people up by our own wrongdoing. Instead, we help them release them when they get it wrong by forgiving them. It's part of what it means to follow Christ. And the second feature for followers of Jesus is faith. It's not clear why when Jesus talks about forgiveness that the disciples ask for more faith. Luke may just have been trying to, to form a link here between one set of sayings and another set of sayings. How does forgiveness relate to faith? Well, let's have the disciples ask, increase our faith. And Jesus goes on then to say, look, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... You can command this mulberry tree to be uprooted and plant itself in the sea and it will obey you. That is every gardener's dream. To be able to say to that stubborn tree stump, be uprooted and plant yourself in the English Channel. 
and wow, it's gone. I have to say that there are no documented instances of this taking place at all. And why a mulberry tree? Well, they have a reputation amongst gardeners for a particularly aggressive, invasive and destructive lateral root system. You don't want mulberry trees growing near your drains. And correspondingly, they are extremely difficult to uproot. Yet Jesus says, with faith the size of a tiny mustard seed, a word of command can uproot that stubborn tree stump and plant it in the North Sea. What's that about? What is Jesus saying? The point he's trying to make by this particularly vivid example is that how much faith you have is completely irrelevant. Increase our faith, say the disciples. It's not more faith you need, he says. Faith the size of a a grain of mustard seed can achieve the impossible. What matters is not how much faith you have, but what you do with the small amount of faith you have. Doesn't matter whether it's a massive amount or a tiny amount. What counts is where you put it. Sometimes people say, you've just got to have faith. What's that mean? Faith in what? Faith in your own abilities? Faith in our politicians? (laughs) Faith in the power of mind over matter? Faith in science? Faith in the essential goodness of human nature? Which of those is actually going to make a difference to you in your situation and the outcome of your life? Which is going to uproot whatever aggressive, invasive and destructive force is damaging your life? If that's what we're talking about, then it's faith in Jesus that you need. Maybe faith just the size of a grain of mustard seed. But you put it in him. Because he's the one who's promised that whoever calls on his name will be saved. He's the one who extends forgiveness for us and disentangles us from the things that have caught us, ensnared us and are ruining our life. Jesus is the one who operates the divine search and rescue service. And if you're in trouble, he's the one you need to call. He's the one you need to put your faith in. Doesn't matter how much you have. If you're going to put it anywhere, put it in Jesus. And what's factor three for the follower of Jesus? It's faithful service. All this stuff about calling on the name of Jesus is all very well, but let's not fall into the trap in thinking that Jesus is just there to do our bidding. When we call him, he runs down from heaven to attend whatever pressing or vital or relatively unimportant need we've just expressed in our prayers. Faith doesn't make Jesus do what we want. We need to remember that he's the boss. He's the one in charge. Jesus is Lord. And that means we are his servants. So don't start thinking too much of yourself. As if this is a kind of reciprocal relationship. Well, Jesus and I get on okay. I scratch his back and he scratches mine. And, you know, we've got this kind of arrangement that works really, really well. That is not how it's going to be. Look, said Jesus, you've got a servant who works for you in the fields. At the end of his shift, are you so overwhelmed with gratitude for what he's done that you tell him to put his feet up while you go and cook the dinner and serve him and look after him and take care of him? No, if he's the servant, he's there to do your bidding. He's there to do the work that you assign him to do. 
And if you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, you are his servants and our role is to do his bidding. Never suppose that you are so important that Jesus couldn't manage without you. Never suppose that you are indispensable to him. Never suppose that he scratches his head and thinks, oh, I'm so grateful to Tim Carter or whoever you are. I couldn't possibly manage without him. He matters so much. No, that's not how it works. In his commentary on Luke, Francois Bobo makes the point that God needs men and women, but considers those who believe themselves particularly indispensable to be useless for the task. God is in charge. We are his servants. We are called to do his bidding. He's not obliged. He's not there to do ours. And remember when you pray in faith, that's the way round it works. Jesus is the boss. He calls the shots. We're his servants. We just do what he requires. Yet Luke does give us an example of an answered prayer in the story of the ten lepers who implore Jesus to take pity on them and he tells them to go and show themselves to the priests and they are healed as they take their first steps of obedience. But only one of them comes back to say thank you. The other nine may be healed of their disease, but only he is told that his faith has saved him. The others may have received outward cleansing, but he was saved body, soul, and spirit. How come? Because he said thanks. And that's the fourth feature that should characterize our lives as followers of Jesus. We have forgiveness, faith, and faithful service. If this were South London, I could say the next one's thankfulness. But because this is Horsham, we have to say it's gratitude. (laughs) Never take what you have received for granted. If you don't express gratitude for it, you end up not valuing it. Gratitude is the prime antidote to dissatisfaction. You can spend your whole life regretting what you never attained. Missing what you used to have. Wondering what would have happened if. And we miss out on what we have got. Give thanks for what you have. It reminds you of the value and importance of it. Remember once as an exercise during Lent decided that my discipline for those 40 days would be to give thanks for something different every single day. And that made a profound difference to my attitude to life. Look at the difference giving thanks made to that Samaritan. As Bovon again observes, thanks to his faith, his gratefulness, and his praise, the Samaritan truly encountered God's spokesman, the Messiah, and through him, God himself. He turned back to thank the person who healed him and found Jesus, found God, found salvation. He could so easily miss out on that. The other nine did. But by giving thanks for what he knew he had received, his healing, he received more than he knew he had. Salvation through an encounter with God through Jesus. And he was a Samaritan, a complete outsider, yet his life was transformed by faith and thankfulness. If you want God to make a difference in your life, and that's what we're about here, 
God making a difference in our lives and in the life of this community. Put into practice these four spiritual disciplines. Forgiveness. Setting other people free when they get it wrong. Faith. Putting what faith you have in Jesus. Faithful service. Getting on with living your life for him because he's Lord. And gratitude for what you have and what he does. Do that for God. And see what God will do in you for you, and through you. See the difference Jesus makes when we live lives of forgiveness, faith, faithful service, and gratitude. Because he's in the business of changing lives and changing communities through us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray to you because our faith What we have is in you. And we trust you. We thank you that you are our saviour. Thank you that you release us from the things that have hold on our lives. Set us free from our past. And give us grace to set other people free as well. Give us grace too to be faithful in serving you. And Lord, fill our lives with gratitude for knowing who you are and what you give and what you do. Transform us into your likeness and transform others through us. We ask in your name. Amen.